Hello, Lime Ninjas, and welcome to episode 75 of Lime Ninja Radio. I am your host, McKay Rippey, and with us from lovely La Jolla, California, is our approved show producer and the brains behind the operation, Aurora. Hello, and I'm really excited to share today's interview with our expert, David Mercier. He has a message about holistic healing that fits in very well with our recent concentration on emotional, uh, the emotional side of healing. Yes, we had our first ever online Ninja Jam sessions where Aaron Murphy and I focused on the emotional blocks to healing Lyme disease. And we got some wonderful feedback, including from one of our participants, Emily Talbot. She left this comment on Facebook. She said, thank you all. Emotional freedom with Lyme. Major breakthrough for me happening now, exclamation point. I took my gloves off and stepped out of the ring. Don't want to fight with Lyme right now. Tea time with Lyme, that's my new motto. This is just too amazing. I'm feeling very blessed to have found this new journey. Yes, and you can learn more about the Ninja Jam sessions at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Thanks, Aurora. And why don't you tell us a little bit about today's health expert, David Mercier. All right. David Mercier is a seminar leader, speaker, life coach, and acupuncturist. In the 1970s, he went to Sri Lanka where he practiced mindfulness meditation as a Buddhist monk for two years. But instead of finding peace of mind, he became ill and depressed. After returning to the U.S., he sought healing from acupuncture and holistic medicine, which developed a passion to help people lead a life of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. In his book, A Beautiful Medicine, he explores the humanistic and spiritual essence of health, healing, and medicine by combining science and spirituality. Thanks, Aurora. Here's our interview with David Mercier. Do you run into Lyme disease out there? Um, yeah, fair enough. So what, fair here's, enough. here's what I want to talk about, David, is with your book, and sure. so I've been interviewing various people around the Lyme community for about a year now. I've done, this is 50, I've published 52 interviews. And with the patients who have had Lyme and kind of successfully turned around and are, are somewhere on the climb out of their deepest places, they all speak of transformation on some level. And Great, great as opposed to the ones who are still struggling, haven't gotten to that point yet. And I think your book is going to be an important piece for a lot of people to, you talk about control, substitute, and catalyze in terms of healing. And it's the catalyzation piece yeah. that's, I'm sorry, control, substitute, catalyze. Yeah, and the ca catalyzation piece is what's missing. Yeah. Like they, they get the antibiotics, they get the infection under control more or less. They begin to substitute some nutrition and some things that are going on genetically. But the catalyst part, uh, is like the sparks missing. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, as, as you talk about, um, Lyme, you know, when, when you first brought it up to, to me, you know, that's, of course, that's my first thought. You know, how do we catalyze the whole person? And, you know, while simultaneously deeply respecting the need for the diagnosis and medical interventions, I mean, they are, I think, absolutely necessary. We also want to uh, create a bigger picture and with the transformational context, the, um, the broader context of the person's growth, mind, body, spirit, and, um, you know, empower 
whatever medications that they're taking. Or, and, and at some, some point, not even needing the medication. Well, you know, you know all this. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'll be glad to talk about it. I, you know, I, I would imagine that, um, you know, many of the people that you're interviewing are of the same mindset, but I think it's, it's usually useful because every person articulates, you know, their vision in a slightly different way. And I think it helps the listener or the reader to hear the same message being said by different people for, for, for two reasons. One is that, you know, the, the difference in the message can maybe flesh it out a little bit more to help the, the ideas sink in. But the other is I think sometimes the sheer numbers of, of voices saying the same thing also adds credibility to the message. So, um, you know, I think it's good for people to keep hearing the same thing in, in different ways. Undoubtedly. So I want to read you a very short quote from your book, and then I want you to comment on it. I, I think it, it really is the point okay. for departure for this conversation. And you wrote... We are thirsty okay. to live freely, to live unbound, or at least to get by with a little less trouble and a little more peace. But today, soul and science are divorced. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that we have become so enamored of the scientific view of health and healing that we lose sight of what's invisible, even invisible um, to the microscope. And the, the assumption behind so much of this is that if something is tangible and measurable, it is actually more real than what is not tangible and not measurable. And I think it's an, ex- an extreme form of seduction. It's a philosophical seduction. And, and I think it, it allays a, uh, an existential anxiety um, that we all have when faced with the uncertainty of, you know, diagnoses, health, healing, and medicine, because, you know, any form of medicine is just completely infused with uncertainty. You know, whether you're in oncology or cardiology or acupuncture, you know, there's so much that we don't know. And so I think the search for, for answers and in the desire for some, uh, what's the word, for some certainty, for some clear-cut um, answers, you know, we, we hang on to that which is me- measurable. So if we find the line spiral peaks, you know, within within the, the tissues of the body, well, that that leads us to sort of hang our hat on that idea. And since it's measurable, tangible, and measured by a doctor, you know, we tend to, to sort of focus on that, and all the other immeasurables um, tend to have uh, a little less credibility, maybe. Um, uh, an aura that maybe it's not quite so real, maybe it's a little airy-fairy compared to the actual visible line spirochy. So that's part of what I'm referring to as the divorce, whereas, you know, if you look at 
uh, a person's life and look at what you know what's going on in the heart, soul, and the mind, and the relationships with the person that possesses those lines, hierarchies. You know, we have a huge, huge picture, and it's a unique picture, and it's full of emotion, uh, full of drama, full of the human narrative. Um, and, and, you know, some narratives are more dramatic than others, but nevertheless, there's some kind of a narrative there behind whatever's going on at the, at the physical level. And so if we d- uh, dig into that a little bit more, you know, we find often self-esteem issues. We find relationship issues, job dissatisfaction. Uh, maybe a sense of alienation in the marriage, maybe a sense of numbness in marriage or relationships. Um, you know, an adult child on drugs, um, who knows? Any number of things that, that are, are clearly not the cause of Lyme disease, but certainly have to, uh, have to be some kind of an influence, have to have some kind of a contributing influence on the susceptibility to Lyme and maybe some of the difficulty in, in moving past the line. So it's, it's really a matter of blending the two, you know, the hard material stuff like spirochetes and antibiotics with um, softer non-material aspects, which is, you know, what is going on in, in the immeasurable emotional, spiritual dimensions of, of this person's existence. And not saying that one is right and the other is wrong or one is better than the other. I think it's a matter of acknowledging that the, the multidimensional nature of human beings you know, requires that we look at all of those dimensions and see in which way the, um, the different configurations of mind, body, spirit, and so on are showing up in, in an individual and working hard to make sure that we're getting to the, um, one of the, the key elements of healing. And to be more specific, um, you know, if a person's been taking the antibiotics and they're doing supplements and vitamins and exercise and trying to do well, but um, they're, they're feeling completely alienated and distressed in their marriage or relationship, well, we really want to work on that because the, you know, the emotional distress cannot help but influence the human physiology for the worst. Right. That, so, yeah, that's, that's beautifully that's stated. It reminds me so much, an, another passage in your book, you talk about a patient who comes in with shoulder and hip pain, and then uh, the hip pain begins to dissipate, and all of a sudden what she's faced with is unresolved emotional issues, and rela- specifically relationship issues, that the pain was... What's, I don't want to say masking. Masking is kind of a, a word to describe it, but substituting. It's like instead of having to work on this, we'll just focus on my my shoulder yeah. and hip pain. And I think that, you know, I, I, I haven't asked this question. I think I will begin to uh, with, with some of my people I'm interviewing. So I think there's this expectation that I get on the antibiotics and even to the point where they're trying to figure out what the right antibiotics are. And that's such a complicated issue in and of itself that when they finally get to a point where the bacterial load has lessened, I think there's this expectation that they're going to feel better. But really, I think what you're pointing to with, with your work is at that point, they've just stopped digging the hole. And now, and now the healing can begin. Yeah. And I, in some ways, we're right. not we're not prepared, and they have they haven't been prepared. 
for the next steps in the journey. Right, right. And that's where it's really important to, to uh, make a dis- dis- distinction between a whole and, and the part, you know, the, the condition of the person's whole body and mind versus the particular diagnosis. And <clears throat> I think a really good term for that is the terrain. Um, you know, some people in integrated medicine call it the terrain. I think that's a clear-cut image to show that, you know, what we're looking at is the soil in the garden and not which plant is um, put into, into the garden and how each plant is doing. You know, we just want to make sure the soil is great for, for all the plants. And I think it also ties in with the other things that, that we know in integrated medicine, which is, you know, as we look at those things that promote the condition of a whole, improve the condition of a whole, it's actually irrelevant what the diagnosis is, to, to a large degree. I mean, certainly we need to make some adjustments depending on the diagnosis, but by and large, it's simply a matter of eating whole foods, exercising appropriate to our condition, you know, finding a sense of wholeness, peacefulness, and joyfulness uh, within the mind and the soul. And so it doesn't make any difference if, if it's recovery from a heart attack, um, if it's irritable bowel syndrome, Lyme disease, cancer, um, so on and so on. We're working the terrain. You know, we're, we're not trying to trim and, and heal a particular plant in the garden. We're working on, you know, all of the soil. So <clears throat> I think there, you know, there's a very encouraging piece of that, though, for the patient, which is, look, you know, even if you didn't have this disease, even if you didn't have Lyme disease, <laughs> I would still be saying the same things to you. You know, let's let's look at your diet, let's look at your exercise, let's get your relationships, so on and so on. And and I think it's a fabulous opportunity for people. You know, I think it's a way of completely shifting their mindset and realizing that the by doing this, we get into into the deepest roots of healing and wellness. So it can't help, for the most part, uh, improve. The, the trajectory of the particular illness. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we get, we increase the chances of having a, the healthiest, happiest lives possible. So I think, I think that's a really encouraging message. And I think it makes patients think too. You know, if you say, well, let's look at all these specialties. We've got cardiology, immunology, rheumatology, neurology, gastroenterology, and so on. And for, for different conditions, you would go to each one of these different doctors. Um, but then you think, well, wait a minute, exercise is good for the, for the digestive system. It's good for the heart. It's good for reducing cancer risk. It's good for the joints. You go, wait a minute, how come this treatment, quote unquote, called exercise, um, is good for all these different, um, diagnoses? You know, we don't need a special, um, exercise for a, any particular condition. And so I think that helps patients understand that what we're talking about is really the ground that roots the, the terrain as opposed to the particular problem. And I think that is, you know, one of the um, huge gaps in conventional medicine. You know, with all due respect to the, to the miraculous nature of, of what they've discovered, um, you know, in, in terms of surgery and medications and so on, there's the um, non-acknowledgement of the context in which symptoms happen, which is, you know, the relationship, diet, exercise, and, and all of that. So I, th- I think it's an encouraging message for patients to realize, hey, you know, we'd be, we'd be talking about these kinds of things anyway. You know, regardless of diagnosis, we want relationships whole and happy and harmonious. And regardless of diagnosis, you know, it's important to eat well. Uh, regardless of diagnosis, 
you know, and keeping the body in the best shape possible through exercise is really crucial. But I think it's very um, enlightening and encouraging for patients. So do you think something like Lyme disease can be, uh, what's, uh, an opportunity? I mean, normally we just kind of cruise through life and unless something stops us, we just kind of carry on unless something really gets in the way. And even if things are pretty dysfunctional, we just kind of cruise along and complain as we, as we ride life's ups and downs until we're stopped and Lyme often is a full stop. So can something as horrible as Lyme disease be an opportunity? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think any disease can. And, you know, of course, I think it's up to the individual to choose to see it that way or not. Um, But absolutely, I think there's so much to learn. And, you know, the, the whole idea that the symptom is a message is really applicable here. Um, the disease is the message too. And, um, so just taking the, the adversity as a call to action, as a call to inquire more deeply into all aspects of our life is, is a tremendous opportunity, tremendous transformation. There's a great story in your book about climbing Kilimanjaro. Will you tell that story mm-hmm. and the 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 lesson at the end of it about sensation is one thing and meaning another? Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it was 2001, July, and um, I took my then 15-year-old son on this, on this uh, climb, and I wanted it to be a rite of passage for him. You know, we, we don't have a rite of passage in our society. I mean, you know, the Jews have the bar and the bat mitzvahs. Um, but other than that, there's hardly anything in our culture that signifies the, the transition into a different stage of, of life, a greater step toward adulthood, um, and also an acceptance by uh, the community. And so I thought, you know, this would be a, a hard thing for, for my son, and he'd really have to work at it, but um, it could be symbolic of this, of this transition. And, of course, um, I had turned 50 that year, too, and I wanted to celebrate that. And so it was a, a fantastic experience. It was hard in that the very low levels of oxygen, you know, between 15 and 19,300 feet, um, <laughs> pretty rough on the body. You know, you really, so eat, I mean, you, you would walk. Yeah, you can't get any slowly. lower than Eastern mm-hmm. Maryland. That's about sea level, right? <laughs> right, right. It's about sea level. So, you know, at that altitude, you, you know, you may walk, you know, 25, 50 steps slowly and be completely out of breath as though you just, wow. you know, been running um, 100 yards. And so you walk very, very slowly. But also, it's the, the last day was um, uh, leading up to and after the climb was really tough in that um, I only got Actually, I don't think I got any sleep the night before. We pulled into the camp at about 15,000 feet at around 8 or 9 o'clock. But because mm-hmm. of the altitude, I couldn't sleep. And so we started hiking at mm-hmm. 1 o'clock that morning. So I had been up, you know, that whole day, no sleep, and we started hiking at 1 in the morning. 
And I think as you know, the temperature was in the teens or the twenties. It was pretty cold. And so we go hiking up, and uh, we get to the top at about uh, somewhere around eight or nine o'clock. You know, you don't spend more than twenty minutes up there because you really need to get back down to where there's more oxygen. And so we hiked all the way down past the camp at fifteen thousand, all the way back down to the camp we had stayed at the night before, which is twelve thousand feet. And so we got there at, I believe, dinner time that night. So basically, I had been up and walking at high altitudes from um, about 6 or 7 o'clock Wednesday morning until dinner time Thursday night. Um, and I was, I, I didn't know that it was humanly possible to feel that much exhaustion. I, I'd never experienced anything like that before. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, but um, it was intense. It was almost painful, although that's not quite the right word, but it was such a sense of lethargy. Like, I, I couldn't brush my teeth. Um, I, I didn't shower. I didn't take my clothes off. To get to bed. I, just, I just collapsed on the bed. Um, and, of course, I was ecstatic. <laughs> I was ecstatic. Um, to know that we had made it, because not everyone makes it to the top right. because of altitude sickness. And um, and to know that my son had this experience, um, you know, it's just, it was just a thrill beyond words. So there I was simultaneously so exhausted, I couldn't lift my my arm to brush my teeth, um, and I'm in a state of ecstasy. And so that that's a, just a, such a clear... Um, example of the difference between an actual sensation of pain, discomfort, exhaustion, tension, and the context in which that's happening. You know, another example I use in, in my book is that somebody could be, you know, just aching all over their lungs are bursting and they're, and, and they're agony, and they could be ecstatic because they're just finishing a, a, tri- a triathlon or a marathon. You know, it's, and, and they wouldn't give up that pain for anything. Um, and, and something that I think that changes the context of, uh, in the context in that situation too, is that that was totally voluntary. And yeah. I think that does make a difference. So the experience at Kilimanjaro was voluntary. Experience at the end of a marathon was voluntary. But when it comes to people with diseases, um, I think the relevant point here is that the mind state, the, the perception, the attitude we have toward our condition does make a big difference. And even though, you know, no one gets Lyme, uh, voluntarily, it is nevertheless still possible to work on shifting the context, um, you know, working creatively, working intentionally and really thinking in depth about what meaning do I choose to give to the presence of Lyme disease in my life? So just because it wasn't voluntary um, doesn't mean you can't go around and change the content right. any, anyway. Which goes back to you know one of your, your earlier comments about that it, it can be a transformational event. So, and, and as a matter of fact, it ties in perfectly with, with that. So if they say, you know, I'm going to use my Lyme disease as a way of transforming my life, learning more about who I am, learning new skills for wellness, communication, new skills for living my life the best I can, then all of a sudden, Lyme disease is an opportunity. 
it's, I think, it's a little tricky because, you know, it, it would be hard for a practitioner to sort of <laughs> lay that on, on, on a patient. You need to change your mindset, um, cause son. I think that can be a f- <laughs> right, right. I mean, it can be offensive, but I think, you know, with, with gentle guidance and, and, you know, gentle conversation about the possibility of um, seeing their Lyme disease in this light, I think, you know, I think most people would, would, would come around. I think it's, it's kind of hard to argue with, actually, you know, if you really think about it. Well, um, and the alternative is, is to live in resignation, resentment, bitterness, um, or a sense of deceit about it. And, you know, when put, when, when, you look at the opportunity to see it as when you look at it as the opportunity uh, for transformation versus living in resignation or victimization. It's kind of choices is right. pretty obvious. One place I see this in effect is when uh, okay. patients going through a Herxheimer reaction. So they've taken antibiotic or herbs or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're they're feeling worse than they already what they thought was the worst, and they may not be exactly joyful, but there's some sense of oh good we're making progress, and that can shift things. And I yes. until I read that part in that chapter six in your book, I I didn't quite understand that that embracing of the Herxheimer. I just didn't get it at that level. And you helped me really see it. It's like, oh, okay. So for this, it, it shifts their entire context of the disease. Is Yes, we're finally moving forward, even though I feel worse. So thank you for that. Right. right. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad. Now, yeah. the other thing that you bring up that I want to talk about before we run out of time is you talk about the courage to heal. And yes. Why, why do you need courage to heal? Isn't it enough just to, you know, kind of show up at the doctors? What? <laughs> yeah. yeah it, <clears throat> to me, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. And, um, boy, there's so much to say about that. But, oh, gosh, we could go on and on about this. But it's, it's really a... Um, such an important topic. I think okay. Well, well you talk about time. the culture of indulgence. Um, Let's start there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, the culture of indulgence is um, really the effective culture. I, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone's at fault. I can't, I can't blame any of us for adopting the ways and means of the culture of indulgence. And by that, I mean, you know, we're just accustomed to we're soft. creature comforts. And uh, I'm soft. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, we, yeah, we yeah. we get used to it. And, and, you know, anyone does. We all do. I mean, we, we, we can't avoid that. And, and, you know, there's a whole other side to it. I think it, it's advantageous in, in many ways um, in that it allows, it frees us up to, if we want, uh, focus on things that matter on our physical wellness and so on. But by and large, the effect is to make us um, less willing to engage in the hardship of, say, you know, going to the gym several times a week and, and feelings of burn, as they say. It makes us less willing to give up the, the two cocktails every night. You know, it's part of my routine. I've been doing it for 40 years. It's a great time for me and my wife and my husband to 
hang out and relax after a long day. Um, you know, it's it's partly habit, it's partly the the if I might say so, mm-hmm. even like an addiction to the 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 comfortable things, the the pleasurable things that we want in our life. And as with anything, it's not I'm not saying that, that these are wrong and that they're bad. I think that it's a matter of looking at to what extent um are they determining the course of my life. And so when a person really should be exercising more and not drinking and chopping up crunchy vegetables to eat and taking time out to cook healthy meals and, and they're not doing it, um, that becomes a real detriment in, in our lives. So I think when I speak about courage, I'm speaking about it um, at several levels, and this is the first. But the simple um, discomfort of waking up on a cold morning and you know going for a run, um, you know, instead of going to you know some whatever social event, um, or before going to a social event, you know, getting to the gym first, or going for a bike ride, or a run, that kind of thing. And so I think it it takes. At that level, I don't know if it's so much courage as much as the willingness to experience the discomfort, um, the willingness to have the discipline necessary to do what's right and what's best for, for our body. But beyond that, we have a different kind of courage, and um, there are many different aspects of that, but it's the courage to face the emotional discomfort um, that shows up in many, many ways and in many different areas of our lives. And one of them is um, in our relationship to ourselves. So as we look at, you know, whatever self-worth, self-esteem issues that, that um, have to be dealt with, you know, the chances are that we're not going to be inclined to dive deep into those issues and work them out. Uh, a lot of times it requires getting in touch with our anger, our fear, our judgments, our self-judgments, our loneliness, our sense of alienation. And it's much easier to distract ourselves by keeping busy, um, you know, doing all kinds of activities, whether social, or personal, or career-wise, um, or to numb those feelings with you know, an excess of food or an excess of alcohol and drugs and, and that sort of thing. So I think the inclination is just to create sensations of pleasure rather than dive into the pain that might be there as we inquire more deeply into our spiritual and, and emotional self. Then there's, there's the interpersonal aspects of our emotional pain and you know, in many situations, I'm sure you found this in your practice too, that people are living in, in, in compromised relationships where there is a, a suppression or a repression of, you know, the, the, the feeling, the, the, the anger or the loneliness, the sense of alienation, which then means to a suppression and repression of our pleasurable feelings, too, the love and the compassion and the relatedness. <clears throat> and so once again, it's a matter of, you know, do we have the courage to, to engage in these very difficult conversations where we're really looking at the truth of what's going on and the reluctance to do that. So looking at, at these issues, to me, that is a matter of courage. 
it is really something that takes a huge amount of courage to say, you know what, here's the painful truth that I have not been looking at in my life, and I choose to go there. You know, one example is um, for people who are who are grieving, um, and to be more specific, people who have found that the grieving process has gotten stuck. And that, by that I mean, right. you know, it's been five years, and they're grieving as though it happened last last month. You know, the the, the gradual easing mm-hmm. of the grief is not happening, although, you know, the, the speed um, and the nature of that progress depends on every individual. Still, you know, say five years, it's a long time to be stuck in the grief. One of the things that I, I ask people to do is to write a letter to the deceased person. And, of course, you know, that, that brings up a, a mm-hmm. certain wave of resistance, understandably, because what it means is that they're really going to have to go into the pain. They're really going to have to feel how much they miss the person. And, and usually in, in situations of excessively prolonged grief, there's something other than grief in there, such as guilt. I didn't do a good enough, jo- good enough job mm-hmm. taking care of him as he was done. Or I should have, would have, could have done something different. Or there's anger. And so, you know, there's this thing of how can I be angry at this person who is dead and who is such a loving person to me? And so I think that it does take a tremendous amount of courage to be willing to face these uh, emotional conundrums, um, to, to sit down with a big box of Kleenex next to them and and just go into the pain and sadness. So I think that's, that is courage. And I remember hearing one meditation teacher talking about um, teaching a meditation course, like a week-long meditation course to a bunch of, you know, Army special ops or Navy SEALs or some, you know, super hardened, super tough young men. And then saying, you know, uh, during the meditation was harder than training to become a Navy <laughs> How come? Um, which is, you know, obviously, yeah, because they had to look inside. They had to look at their emotions. They had to, to they couldn't escape from any emotions and feelings that came up um, from inside. So if a Navy SEAL says it's harder to do that kind of work than to go to the most brutal training on the planet in, in their training, well, you know, it, it takes courage to go into the emotional, so, emotional depths. So I think that's then clinically it takes some compassion to walk somebody to that edge or to have them walked by life's situation to that edge. And that's the next step to go in there to, to process, to heal. And do we, do we need to do that to heal? Can't we, can't, do we, do we really have to David? (laughs) Can I just, you know, have another glass of wine? Well, you know, it's it's an interesting question. Um, let's put it this way. You know, many people find that their bodies start to feel better, start to heal better, start to heal more quickly once they've released the emotional blocks. Whether they have to or not, you know, I, I actually, you know, I put it this way to, to them. I think it's a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a choice to continue as, as they have been or to see what happens if they, ex- if they explore the possibility that the emotional blocks are contributing to their physical aches and pains. And so, 
you know, ultimately, obviously, no one has to do anything. Um, but if, if they think of it as a choice, uh, and, and that's an exploration, because ultimately, we don't really know what's going to happen, right? No one ever knows. You give someone an antibiotic or antidepressant or put an acupuncture needle in, we have no idea what's going to happen. We have our, um, you know, reasoned uh, guesses uh, based on our experience and, and the research, but no one really, really knows what's going to happen. So... I, th- I think it's useful to think of, um, you know, the exploration of the emotions underlying our physical aches and pain as an inquiry, you know. And, I, you know, I, I can't say for sure to anyone that, you know, you're going to feel better if, if the emotions are released. Because I think the degree to which the unexpressed emotion infiltrates the body at the cellular and the tissue level really varies from one person to the next. And I've had some people with pretty significant pains have the pain go away completely and rapidly and instantly by working out the emotional issues. And for others, you know, it's a different thing based on their, their, you know, their genetic makeup, based on, you know, everything else that's been going on in their lives at the physical level, uh, how many medications they're on and so on. I think the unresolved emotions can play a more of a minor role. In, in the aggravation of the disease. So I think that, that ratio really varies quite a lot um, from one person to the next. So with that in mind, I say, you know, hey, it's, it's, a, it's a choice. But, you know, what's to lose from trying, you know, trying to exploit the emotional dimensions of this? Sometimes movement on the periphery can generate movement in the depths. Yeah, 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 I like that. One quick story, and then, then we'll begin to wrap up here. I Talking about emotional stuckness, I had a patient a while back. Uh, she went down to visit her first newborn grandson and came back with quite achy low back. And her explanation was she's carrying around this eight-pound bundle of joy for longer than she was uh, – used to and and her back gave out and i took her mm-hmm. pulses and her heart protector her fire pulses were bounding and so my diagnosis was she was overjoyed too much joy she was unable to handle all the joy so we did a little sedation on her heart protector and her back pain talking about vanishing vanished instantly so it's it's funny uh-huh. how uh-huh. what you talk about that the symptom is a message and it's it's calling us to pay attention, uh, and that's that's not something you would really think about, like the too much joy. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So you've been very generous with your time. Is there anything you want to say in wrapping up this conversation? Something we missed that's critical. Yeah, you know there is one thing, and I think it's. Um, what I highlighted in the last chapter of my book, and it's looking at what, you know, what the purpose of medicine is. And I'm, I'm defining medicine very broadly, not just conventional medicine, but any kind of medicine. You know, why do we want the body to be better? And, you know, one of the things I said early on in the book is that no one wants to be healthy just to be healthy. It's not health for health sake. Um, no one says, hey, honey, I'm going to go into the living room and sit there and be healthy. <laughs> right? It's not, it's not anything we do. 
the only value, the utilitarian value of health is that it grants us the ability, it grants us the freedom to live the life that we really want. So I think, you know, understanding the utilitarian nature or the pragmatic value of being healthy is really crucial. And I think it's important to have that conversation because it's, well, you know, if you didn't have your Lyme disease, if you didn't have your arthritis, you know, what, what would you really want to do? You know, what, what's your goal and what's your mission in your life? Then we tie that in with the idea that if you ask people, um, what do they really, really want with their lives? I mean, of course, we all want, you know, a nice home, a nice income, a nice family, nice friends, and so on. But, you know, if you ask people, like you're, you're lying there on your deathbed and you look back on your life, what would you really wish you had accomplished with your life? What would you, will you wish your life had been about? And almost everybody I've asked that question to talks about, right. about love. You know, I want to know that my kids grew up to be great citizens of the world. I, my kids are happy and they're, they're happy with their kids. And I made a difference in the community or people remembered me for being a nice guy or a nice, nice woman. You know, no one ever says, you know, I, I wish I'd had, you know, I'm, I'm, my life is worthwhile because I made a lot of money. Um, again, I'm not anti-materialistic in, in, by any means, and I'm not anti-money by any means. I'm just saying that there's a larger conversation here. I think that most people um, really go to when they really, truly, deeply think about what their lives are about. So... So if you look at those two ideas, health is, is, is a pragmatic value, um, and value is to, to lead the life that, that we want. But then when we really get down to, to the bottom of it, what we really want is to be an agent of love, compassion, caring, to have that in, in our lives. Then I think we could think of the purpose of medicine as the, the, as, as supporting our journey toward becoming and having love, compassion, and joyfulness in connection, in unity with other people. And so if we think that everything that we're doing, whether we're taking an antibiotic, an antidepressant, or a, you know, ginkgo or ginseng, you know, that ultimately where we're going with this in the grand scheme of things is to become the most loving people, the most caring people, the most compassionate people we can be, and to bring that forth in, in others, then I think we've got a beautiful medicine. <laughs> I think that we have uh, an understanding of how patients can go about their lives, an understanding of how we as practitioners can support them in becoming uh, healthier and whole, by understanding that this is ultimately where we're going to a state of beauty, that place of inner beauty, um, and that's uh, a beautiful medicine. Lovely, lovely vision. I love it. Now, how do people get in touch with you, buy your book, so forth, so on? Okay. Well, my website is, I have two addresses. You can go to abeautifulmedicine.com. And my contact information is there. Um, phone number is 410-924-3831. 
My email address is david at davidgmercier.com. And as far as my book is concerned, any bookstore can order it for them. So if a person goes to their independent bookseller, you know, it can be ordered and should be arrive in, in several days. Or they can order it on Amazon. And the title of the book is A Beautiful Medicine. Yes. So David, thank you for a beautiful conversation. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Mackay. So this was a really interesting interview, and I think actually that this conversation that you had with David Mercy is what got you focused on emotional healing. You know, I first met David back in 1989 when I first started studying acupuncture, and speaking with him really brought me back to the core of the five-element teaching, and that is that health is a phenomenon that's rooted in the spirit. In fact, there's a book that we were assigned called Rooted in the Spirit. And it's a quote from one of the ancient Chinese texts, and it says, above all, you must make sure that your treatment is rooted in the spirit. So there's so much more to health than just our detoxification pathways or our gene uh variants that we have to be responsible for and making sure we were eating the right food and getting the right antibiotic, right, the correct antibiotics to fight the right, uh, spirochete or co-infection right. that we have. Health is, is what goes beyond that. It's like you can, you can be healthy. You can have a strong spirit and be completely sick. And conversely, you could mm -hmm. be healthy and have a completely sick spirit. You can be completely miserable. So there's so much more to health. And really his book, A Beautiful Medicine, really began to bring that back to the forefront for me. It's so easy to get trapped into, oh, I need folate instead of folic acid. And that's a critical piece of this, but it's only a small, small piece. Mm -hmm. So, if you, all you out there, if you think he had something important to say, go ahead and check out his book. Yes. Insert shameless plug here. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a beautiful medicine. It was a beautiful book, and it's called A Beautiful Medicine by David Mercier. And if you need more Lime Ninja in your life, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or the podcast app on your iPhone or iPad. That way you won't miss out. Also, please leave a review for us on iTunes. If you're listening on your phone, search for us on the podcast app, hit the search icon, type in Lime Ninja Radio, click on the big ninja button. If you're not subscribed yet, go ahead and do that. Select the review button and scroll down and select write a review. And make sure to leave us five stars. Thanks, Aurora, and thank you, Ninjas. By leaving a review on iTunes, you're going to help more people find great information about Lyme disease. And lastly, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lyme Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know when a Jedi dies, they become part of the Force? When the Force dies, it becomes part of a ninja. <laughs> Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. 
Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.